Hey, Libby, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm looking forward to our second short episode. What do we have in store? So, we are not doing a debate today, unlike our first short episode. Mm, why not? Mainly because you were too scared, Owen, because what? overwhelming consensus was that you lost our debate in our last short. Consensus among whom? All the key people, my mum, my husband. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, I see. The key people agree that you won. Well, if we can't do a debate, what else can we do that's moderately antagonistic? Moderately antagonistic? Well, I'm not sure about moderately antagonistic, but what we are going to do is have a chat about a paper of yours that you shared this week. Is that going to be antagonistic? I wasn't planning to, but sure, yeah. Oh, wait, no, no, I don't. Maybe, maybe I don't want it to be antagonistic this time. Which paper? It was a paper of yours looking at some early results from a project that you're working on, which is Rory. Rory's great, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I collaborate on this project with an organization called Rising Academies. They're an education company and school group in West Africa. And Rory is an AI-powered chatbot that teaches students math, and it works on WhatsApp. Cool. And you wrote a paper showing some results with some of your co-authors and it's generating a bit of interest with education folk online. Yeah, someone said something nice about something I wrote, which is probably first <laughs> in my lifetime. So that was great. Yeah, this is reporting on a year one efficacy trial. Rory is being used in a variety of contexts, but some of those are at the schools that Rising runs. There's this experimental setup with a control group and a treatment group. The treatment group got to use Rory twice a week for 30 minutes. The control group had normal math classes. And we did this over about an eight-month period and gave math assessments at the beginning, middle, and end. And so this paper, we just reported on those results. So it's kind of what you might call an efficacy trial. And don't leave us hanging. What were the results? They were pretty good, at least in the context of education. The effect size, which would kind of represent like how much students using Rory's learning improved. And then you standardize this in some ways for comparison was about 0.35, which is considered big in education circles. A really rough approximation would be that this would be something between something like an extra year's worth of learning. That's extremely approximate. Since I also am an academic, I have to put 17 caveats, <laughs> provisional findings, insufficiently large X, Y, and Z. And so try not to overclaim. Yeah, well, congrats to you and the rising team. Some really promising results about the ability of Rory to improve math skills. So Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, see. it's really nice. I'm happy about it. Why the heck are we talking about it? Well, I hope you didn't think it was going to be a totally easy ride. Uh, I do have uh, a couple of okay. questions. <laughs> the, now the penny drops. <laughs> I, see, I see a knife being sharpened. <laughs> no oh, knives, okay. no knives. Just a couple of gentle questions. It is a technical after it all, is, right? Exactly. It can't it's, just be a puff piece? It is Even for one of the co-hosts? Even for you. Even oh. for you. No puff piece. Right. No puff piece. Well, because it's said technical and because we're really interested about AI and education here, it would be interesting to hear how much of the learning gains that you saw were driven by AI versus something else. And if something else, what was that something else? There's always a possibility that some idiosyncratic thing we don't know about is happening. But let's assume for now that these learning gains were attributable to Rory as opposed to some unforeseen factor. And I think your question is saying, if these learning gains are Rory, how much of it is more AI-driven part of Rory versus the more classic part of this? Is yeah, right? exactly. So while and where we're trying to use AI, mainly natural language processing, both old-fashioned natural language processing and some of the generative LLM stuff we've been talking about a lot, the core part of Rory is based on mastery-based learning principles. You'll probably be familiar with this. The idea is that students practice at their current skill level rather than their current grade level. 
until they've mastered the requisite skills. So you don't really move on until you've demonstrated mastery. And quick side note, if anyone's interested in hearing more, go back to episode three with Kristen DeCerbo from Khan Academy, where we talk about mastery learning a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in international context, almost the same idea, but it's often called teaching at the right level. We'll put up some links, but there's some really robust empirical experiments showing that just teaching students at their level of ability, especially in developing countries, is a really powerful intervention where discrepancies in student abilities in classrooms are very pronounced, probably even more pronounced than in countries like the UK or the US or Europe. The core part of Rory is that students find their own level and they practice math at their appropriate skill level and they're given immediate feedback. So they get a question wrong, we say it's wrong, we show them the right solution, we maybe give them a hint or an explanation. And so my starting hypothesis is a lot of learning gains is that because there's just so much robust empirical evidence that this works. I think that the AI part, what it might unlock is two things. It might allow the experience to work for students. Let's say we ask the student for a question and the student's like, I don't know, this is boring. In a classic scenario, we'd have to say like, please input right answer again and again and again, which would be a pretty bad experience. And now in this case, if the student's oh, this is boring, we can use natural language processing. It seems like you think this is boring. Do you want to switch topics or do you want to hear a joke? And so it's not like that identifying the kids board, like that doesn't literally make them learn better, but it makes the experience better so the student won't leave and they'll find the product and so they'll keep on using it. Okay, so your hypothesis at the moment is that a key driver of the learning gains is this really well-established learning science principle around mastery-based learning and that the AI is playing a really valuable role boosting engagement, supporting engagement. Yeah, and just kind of making it not an awful experience, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got it, got it, that makes sense. So question number two. A really impressive effect size in the study. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Everyone's always complimenting me on my effect size. Yes, yes. Oh, dear. Sorry. <laughs> and the current study is relatively small scale, 11 schools, five treatment schools. What would you expect to happen to the effect size at larger scale? So let's say a thousand schools. Well, I was going to make a joke, but uh, random guess there. So sorry, guys. No more bad jokes. In interventions with humans that aren't medical, that involve some type of what we may call a socio-technical element, they're $3 words, socio-technical, <laughs> that involves people coordinating and doing stuff with other people. There's, this, again, this really well-established pattern. As you scale an intervention from really small to medium to national scale, let's say, usually the effect size goes down. There's a few different explanations for why this happens. One is what you might call implementation fidelity. In this case, these are 10 schools. There's an amazing program manager. It's simple enough that the rising in the implementation, me as the researcher, can make sure things are happening the way they are supposed to happen. If it's a 1,000 schools, you don't actually know if everyone's doing that. And maybe there's 10 rogue schools who have decided to do something totally different for, you know, a really hard to understand reason. And the students don't actually, quote unquote, receive the intervention. So that's kind of one idea behind implementation fidelity. You also know a lot about the challenges of scaling interventions and these trade-offs. In your previous work, you worked in Uganda with a series of schools. And now you think about this as a funder and just any your thoughts about this trade-off about really promising pilots there's this question of what changes or what happens or can this really grow? And mm -hmm. I just want thoughts or reflections you have on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on what the goals of the program or goals for the product are. So I think if the ultimate goal is this is going to be adopted and rolled out a really large scale by government and be embedded in some national policy, then I think 
cost effectiveness as a question becomes really, really important because mm. if you're a policymaker, there might be a number of options that you have to decide from. What are the really key data points for you to make that decision? And in particularly in low resource settings, cost effectiveness is a really key factor. Do you have any thoughts about this idea of something's bespoke can work really well, but costs aside that like there's certain things that work well at a small scale, but might not work at a big scale in education? I think that's true, but I think probably it doesn't mean it's impossible to do something that's complicated at larger scale. It might just take more time and cost more, but Mm -hmm. I think it's possible to get there. People often really undershoot on how long behavior change takes. A new form of complex pedagogy, you need to get people's buy-in for actually believing that a change is necessary. You need to then really explain the concept and the philosophy and get people aligned on that. And then you need to think about the actual things that people need to do differently in their day-to-day and then create incentives and motivation and pressure around actually doing that, you know, day in, day out. And it's really tough and takes ages. One or two workshops is not going to lead to that type of change. Yeah. To get that sweet, sweet socio-technical change <laughs> takes a lot of work. <laughs> takes a lot of work and a lot of thinking. Well, cool. I mean, this is supposed to be short. And I think I won again, mum, right? You, you can't, wait, I, how did you win? <laughs> is this supposed to be an interview? <laughs> wow. Okay. Thanks, guys. Please give us feedback. Tell us if you like these shorts, how to make them better, other topics. And coming up next, our next full episode is part two with the education investors. Last time we talked with education investors about product innovations, interesting learning experiences that might be unlocked by AI. And next week, what are we talking about, Libby? We're talking about disruption to business models and their views on what's happening in the wider ed tech markets. So that should be really interesting. Something super underrated, even thinking about ed technical issues, is just operations at schools, how like real humans use technology, blockers like that. And so some really interesting conversations on that. Yeah. Great, guys. Cool. Cool.